Welcome to a continued reading of Chapter 21, Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander. A fourth and frequent cause of difference in the exercises of dying persons is produced by the medicine which is administered. When physicians can do nothing to cure, they think it right to lull their patients by opiates or excite them by alcohol. I have, when sick, been more afraid of nothing than those intoxicating and stupefying or even exhilarating drugs. Or let no artificial means be ever used with me in that dread hour to interrupt sober and deliberate reflection. But to return to Dr. Spot, his disease was a violent fever, so that the range of his pulse was from 150 to 170 in a minute. Under such a disease, it is not wonderful that he, had oft, that he was often restless and uncomfortable in his feelings. The Reverend Daniel Wilson, fifth uh, bishop of Calcutta, in his funeral sermon observes that for several years preceding the event itself, his bodily infirmities had been increasing. His strength and natural spirits at times sensibly failed. His own impression was that his departure was approaching and he contemplated it with calmness and tranquility. Mr. Wilson, with great propriety, remarks, Before I proceed to give some particulars of his most instructive and effective departure, I must observe that I know no stress on them as to the evidence of his state before God. It is the tenor of the life, not that of the few suffering and morbid scenes which precede dissolution, that fixes a character. We are not authorized from Scripture to place any dependence on the last periods of sinking nature, through which the Christian may be called to pass to his eternal reward. But though no importance is to be attached to these hours of fainting mortality, with reference to the acceptance and final triumph of the dying Christian, yet where it pleases God to afford one of these departing servants as in the instance before us, such a measure of faith and self-possession as to close a holy and most inconsistent life with a testimony which sealed amidst the pains of acute disease and in the most impressive manner all his doctrines and instructions during 45 preceding years, we are called on, as I think, to record with gratitude the divine benefit and to use it with humility for the confirmation of our own faith and joy. His second son, writing from his bedside, says, His gloom of which I had heard a good deal in an indistinct manner by no means relates to the prospects which lie before him. He is perfectly calm and cheerful in the view of dissolution and seems disappointed at the symptoms of recovery. He thought his trials were almost over and said that yesterday morning he had hoped to end the sacred services of the day in heaven. Indeed, his wish is decidedly to depart, in the confidence that he shall be with Christ, which is far better. His dejection is manifestly nothing more than the feeling of a mind exhausted by its own exertions. His feelings on Sunday were very distressing, both to himself and others, and were clearly aggravated by a degree of delirium arising from fever. Yesterday and today he has been quite calm, and though too weak to speak much, 
is evidently in a tranquil state. I brought my eldest boy with me, that he might once more see his grandfather and receive his last blessing. He spoke to him this morning for a few minutes in a most affecting manner and pronounced his blessing upon him in a way which I trust he will never forget. May God grant that he may walk in the steps which are leading his grandfather to glory. In another letter, a few days afterwards, he says, Though I can say nothing favourable respecting his health, for he appears approaching very near to his end, yet, thanks be to God, the clouds which overspread his mind are breaking away, and he talks with a placidity and cheerfulness greater than I have before seen since I came. Just as we had assembled for family worship, he went to say that he wished to us to meet in his room and join in the Lord's Supper as a means of grace through which he might receive that consolation that he was seeking. The whole family, with one exception, was present, and an old parishioner. It is impossible to describe the deeply interesting and affecting scene, the fervor displayed by my dear father, the poor emaciated form, the tears and sobs of all present were almost more than I could bear with that degree of composure which was requisite to enable me to read the service so as to make him hear, for he had become very deaf. But it was a delightful feeling, and has done more to cheer our downcast hearts than can well be conceived. It was, moreover, a cordial to my father's spirits, who adopted the words of the venerable Simeon in the prospect of dissolution. Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Daniel Wilson, in his funeral sermon, of which a number of editions were published, makes the following just remarks. The remarkable sufferings of so eminent a saint in his last sickness may perhaps at first perplex the mind of young Christians, but such a person should remember that the way to heaven is ordinary, a way of tribulation, and that the greatest honor God puts on his servants is to call them to such circumstances of affliction as display and manifest his grace. What would have crushed a weak and unstable penitent with immature knowledge of the promises of salvation only illustrated the faith of the venerable subject of this discourse. God adapts the burden to the strength. As to the darkness and anguish which at times rested on his mind, they were clearly the combined efforts of disease and the temptations of the adversary. The return of comfort, as the fever abated, made this quite certain, and he was himself able at times to make the distinction. But even in the midst of his afflicted feelings, it was manifest to every real judge of such a case that a living and strong faith was in vigorous activity. For consolation is one thing, faith another. This latter grace often lays hold of the promises made in Christ with a firmest grasp, at the very time when hope and comfort are interrupted by the morbid state of the bodily and mental powers. Our feelings and powers, thank God, are not the foundation on which we build. Never, perhaps, was stronger faith exhibited by our Saviour himself than when he uttered those piercing words, My God, 
my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His daughter, in giving an account of the condition of her dying father, says, in the time of his darkness and gloom, he prayed without ceasing and with inexpressible fervor. He seemed unconscious of anyone being near him and gave vent to the feelings of his mind without restraint. And oh, what holy feelings they were. What spirituality, what hatred of sin, what humility, what simple faith in Christ, what zeal for God's glory, what submission. Never could I hear him without being reminded of him, who being in an agony prayed the more earnestly. I think nothing, said he, of my bodily pains. My soul is all. I trust all will end well, but it is a dreadful conflict. I hope, I fear, I tremble, I pray. Satan tries to be revenged on me in this awful hour for all that I have done against his kingdom through life. He longs to pluck me out of Christ's hand. Subdue the enemy, O Lord. Silence the accuser. Bruce Satan under my feet shortly. Hide me, O my Saviour, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide. O receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none. Oh, to enter eternity with one doubt on the mind. Eternity, eternity, eternity. Oh, what a thing sin is. Who knows the power of his wrath? If this be the way to heaven, what must be the way to hell? If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? He mentioned the wonderful way in which his prayers for others had been answered and seemed to derive some comfort from it. He rejected every attempt to comfort him by reminding him of the way in which he had served and glorified God. Christ is all, he said. He is my only hope. His wonderful knowledge of scripture was a source of great comfort, and the exactness with which he repeated passage after passage was amazing. The manner in which also he connected one with another was admirable. His first clear consolation was after receiving the Lord's Supper, of which an account had been given. He had previously observed, and undue stress is, by some, laid on this ordinance as administered to the sick, and others, I think, are in danger of undervaluing it. It is a means of grace, and may prove God's instrument of conveying to me the comfort I am seeking. After he had partaken of this divine ordinance, he said to his son-in-law, It was beneficial to me. I received Christ, and he received me. I feel a composure which I did not expect last night. I have not a triumphant assurance, but something which is more calm and satisfactory. I bless God for it. And then he repeated, in the most emphatic manner, the twelfth chapter of Isaiah, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me, etc. O to realize the fullness of joy, O to have done with temptation. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, 
and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. They are come out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God. We know not what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The righteous have hope in his death, not driven away, no, not driven away. There is one feeling, said he, which I cannot have if I would. Those that oppose my doctrine have slandered me sadly, but I cannot feel any resentment. I can only love and pity them and pray for their salvation. I never did feel any resentment against them. I only regret that I did not more ardently long and pray for the salvation of their souls. I feel most earnest in prayer for the promotion of Christ's kingdom all over the earth. There are two causes in the world, the cause of God and the cause of the devil, the cause of our Lord Jesus Christ and the cause of the devil. The cause of God will prevail all over the world among all kindreds and peoples and tongues. It shall fill the whole earth. Hallowed be thy name, etc. Waking after a short sleep in great calmness, he said, This is heaven begun. I have done with darkness forever, forever. Satan is languished. Nothing now remains but salvation with eternal glory, eternal glory. But the conflict was not yet over, for another paroxysm came on with great violence. His sufferings were extreme and confusion and gloom prevailed. He cried earnestly to God and said, All my calm and comfort are gone. Nothing remains of them but a faint recollection. Well, after all, God is greater than Satan. Is not Christ all-sufficient? Can he not save to the uttermost? Has he not promised to save? Lord, deliver me. Suffer not Satan to prevail. Pity Pity, Lord, pity me. But during all his severe sufferings of mind and body, not a word of repining or murmuring had escaped his lips. He said with reference to his dying in his disgloom, I cannot help it. Thou art righteous. Father, glorify thy name. And then he repeated those affecting lines of Watts' paraphrase of the 51st Psalm. And if my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. Yet save a trembling sinner, Lord, whose hope still hovering round thy word would light on some sweet promise there, sure, some sure support against despair. To his wife he said, God be your father and your husband. I trust all mine will be kind to you. You have been a great blessing to me. We shall, I trust, meet in heaven. I have less doubt of you than of myself. A message was received from Daniel Wilson, his highly esteemed friend, expressing, among other things, the great benefit he had been to the church. Now this, said he, is doing me harm. 
God be merciful to me a sinner, is the only ground on which I can rest. If I am saved, God shall have all the glory. Having talked too much, he was again distressed, but having obtained some rest, he awoke in the night and said to his younger son, who sat up with him, What is the world and the glory of it? I would not change my hope, lean and meager as it is, for all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, were I sure of living a thousand years longer to enjoy them. His daughter asked him on Sunday if she should stay from church and attend on him. Oh no, he replied, nothing gives me pleasure but what is your good, and the thought that you pray for me. On Monday he said to the servant who attended him, I thank you for all your kindness. You have been a faithful domestic, and I hope a conscientious one. If at any time I have been hasty and sharp, forgive me, and pray to God to forgive, but lay the blame upon me, not on religion. A similar address and request he made to his curate. Thus his feelings continued so to alternate for several days, until death closed the scene. But whatever were his pains, his prayers were unceasing and most earnest. During the whole scene, his patience, his kindness, his submission, his humility, and his faith were most manifest. Chapter 22 Preparation for Death The State of the Soul After Death It was intended to have added the deathbed experience of the Reverend Dr. Andrew Fuller and some others, but it seemed that this part of the subject had been extended far enough. Indeed, some may be ready to inquire why so much is said respecting the thoughts and speeches of dying persons, to which we would reply that there is no subject in the world which ought to be more interesting to all men, since all men are appointed to die. Whatever other evils we may escape, in this war there is no discharge. It is a scene of which we have no previous experience, and therefore it is prudent to learn what we can from the experience of those who have gone before us. It is an, it is an important and awful scene, and should therefore occupy many of our thoughts. If due preparation has been neglected in life and health, there is small probability that it will be made on a dying bed. If I had set down all that I had witnessed and read of the dying exercises of unconverted sinners, it would have pre presented an appalling object for our contemplation. Such scenes have often been exhibited in print, and are not without their use. But such narratives did not fall in with, in with the scope of these essays. But however insipid, or even disgusting these accounts of the dying exercises of believers may be to some readers, there is a class, and a large one too, who will take a deep interest in these things, because they are now waiting till their change come, and are looking forward with intense interest to that inevitable event of which we have been writing so much. These are the persons whom the author has had principally in view in selecting these experiences of departing saints and as the hopes and comforts of the children of God in life are very various, so he has endeavoured to show that a like variety is found in their views and exercises at 
the time of their departure out of the world. The writer confesses also that in dwelling so long on this subject, he had some regard to his own edification and preparation for death. As he knows from infallible evidence that he will soon be required to put off this tabernacle and to emigrate from this lower world, he was solicitous to acquire as much information as he was able from those who have gone before, what were the difficulties, sufferings, and encouragements of pilgrims in this large st last stage of their journey. And however it may be with others, he, was derived, he has derived instruction and encouragement from the contemplation of such scenes as are here described. It appears to him supremely reasonable that during the short time which remains of his life, he should be chiefly concerned in the meditation of the things of another world, and in making actual preparation for his departure. He once supposed that the near approach of death would of itself be sufficient to arouse the mind, and impress upon it the reality and awful importance of eternal things. But he finds by sad experience that however his judgment is convinced of the certainty of death and its consequences, nothing will bring these things to bear on the heart but the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He wishes, therefore, to engage in such reading, meditation, and writing as may have a tendency to fix his thoughts on a solemn scene before him, when he must close his eyes on the light of this world and bid adieu to all his friends and objects with which he has been conversant here. He is not of opinion, however, that the best way to make preparation for death is to sit down and pore over the condition of our own souls, or to combine our exertions to those things which are directly concerned with our own salvation. We are kept here to do our Master's work, and that relates to others as well as ourselves. We have a stewardship of which we must give an account, and the faithful and wise steward is careful and diligent in dispensing to others the blessings committed to him. This is especially the case in regard to ministers of the gospel. We have a responsible office, and our account before the tribunal of Jesus Christ must be solemn and awful, and it will not do to relinquish the proper work of our calling upon the pretext of seeking our own salvation. Our own seeking will be entirely unavailing without the aid and blessing of God, and this we may expect most confidently when we are diligently engaged in doing his work, which is always the duties of our station and calling. Active duty must be performed as long as we have strength for the work. And like the Levites, we must attend around the tabernacle and altar when we are too old for more laborious services. Many of the faithful servants of God have expressed a strong desire not to outlive their usefulness. And some have wished that their departure might occur in the very act of preaching. These things we may better lead to the wisdom of God, who directs all the circumstances of the death of his people, as well as of their lives. Even when, by reason of bodily infirmities, the servants of God are obliged to desist from public labors, they do not cease from serving their master. Their lives are not useless. His name is much honored by patient submission 
and cheerful resignation as by jealous public exertion, and the greatest and most effectual work which can be performed by any on earth they can perform, I mean the offering of prayers and intercessions day and night at the throne of grace. Let not the infirm and ages say that they can now do nothing for God. They can do much. And for aught they can tell, more than they ever did in the days of their vigour. It is a beautiful sight to see men laden with fruit, even in old age. Such fruits are generally more mature than those of earlier days. And the aged saint often enjoys a tranquillity and repose of spirit which is almost peculiar to that age. David, or whoever is the author of the 71st Psalm, prays most earnestly a prayer which should be daily on the lips of the aged. Cast me not in the time of old age. Forsake me not when thy strength faileth. And again, now also when I am old and grey-headed, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength to this generation, and thy power to all that are to come. Let the aged then tell to those that come after them the works of divine grace which they have witnessed or which their fathers have told them. Let them be active as long as they can and when bodily strength fails let them wield the pen or if unable to write with the edification of the church let them exhibit consistent and shining example of the Christian temper in kindness and goodwill to all, in uncomplaining patience, in contented poverty, in cheerful submission to painful providences, and in mute resignation to the loss of their dearest friends. And when death comes, let them not be afraid or dismayed. Then will be the time to honour God by implicitly and confidently trusting in his promises. Let them against hope believe in hope. It is by faith that the last enemy must be conquered. He that believeth shall not be confounded in this trying hour. The great shepherd will not forsake his redeemed flock, for whom he has shed his blood. And though the adversary may rage and violently assault dying saints, he shall not overcome them. Each one of them may say with humble confidence, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Let us not desire to make a parade, an ostentatious display on a dying bed. Death has been called the honest hour, but hypocrisy may be practiced even on a dying bed. Although this event often reveals secrets and brings deceived souls to a conviction of the sandy foundation on which they have built their hopes, yet some keep on the mask to the very last moment, or, however, suppress the expression of their fears and distress of mind. So much is said often about the manner in which persons meet death, that some good men have wished and requested to be left very much alone. They have feared lest they should be tempted to vain glory, even on a dying bed or they have feared lest their courage should fail them in the last struggle, and they should, through pain and imbecility of mind, be left to bring dishonor on their profession. The excellent and evangelical Simeon of Cambridge, 
seems to be under the influence of a feeling of this kind. But the best and safest way is submissively to commit all the circumstances of our death unto God. We have no conception of the soul, but as a thinking, active being. The body is merely an organ, or instrument by which the soul acts while connected with it. Indeed, it cannot be demonstrated uh, that the soul performs all its acts here by the use of this organ, but whether or not is of little in consequence. We know that activity belongs to the soul, not to the body, and it would be a strange conclusion that that which is essentially active should cease to act, because it had been deprived of one set of organs. The only legitimate inference is that, when separated from the body, the mode of action is different from what it was before. And we learn the various operations of the soul only by experience. It is plain that we cannot fully understand or explain the precise mode of its action after it is separated from the body. Paul teaches us that the soul may exist and have conscious exercises of a very exalted kind. For he says, speaking of his rapture into heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Now if the soul could not act without the body, he could have told certainly that he was in the body, when he witnessed in the third heaven things which is not lawful for a man to utter. But this truth is taught more clearly and directly by Christ himself, when he said to the penitent thief on the cross, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. This testimony is of itself abundantly sufficient, and there is no evasion of its force. But by an interpretation so frigid and far-fetched, that it only serves to betray the weakness of the cause which is brought to support. Paul, in another passage, speaks clearly and explicitly on this point. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. In the previous context, the Apostle intimates that when the clay tabernacle is dissolved, the soul will not be found naked, but there will be another house ready to receive it, so that it will not be unclothed, but clothed upon. For, says he, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. It shall be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. It was seen then, that the soul is never without a suitable dwelling. It will not be unclothed. It only passes from one house to another, from an earthly to a heavenly habitation. But what this celestial clothing will be, of course, you cannot now tell. When Stephen was dying, he cried, Lord, receive my spirit. The Lord Jesus is everywhere near to his saints. And as he watches over his sheep during their whole passage through the wilderness, so he is especially near to them when they come to the valley of the shadow of death, 
so that they may then sing with the sweet psalmist of Israel, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. But as Jesus the Lord has his residence in heaven, where he occupies a place on the throne of God, at the right hand of the Father, and is surrounded by an innumerable host, ready to execute all his commands, so he commissions messengers to attend at the dying bed of believers, and receive the spirits of the just, and conduct them to his presence. It is evident that the the departing soul will need a guide and convoy, for utterly ignorant of the glorious world into which it has entered. It would not know which way to direct its course, or where to find its allotted mansion. For heaven is a wide domain. The house of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has many mansions, and every redeemed soul has provided for it an appropriate residence, for Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you and that guardian angels are sent to perform these kind offices for departed saints. We are not left to conjecture, for we read that as soon as Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. There is no reason for supposing that the privilege now conferred on the beggar was peculiar to him. Every saint needs the guidance and guardianship of angels as well as Lazarus. And we may conclude, therefore, that angels will attend our every departing saint. Although we cannot now understand how the soul will act in the future world, when divested of the body of clay, we cannot doubt that its consciousness of its identity will go with it. The memory of the past, instead of being obliterated, will in all probability be much more perfect than while the person lived upon earth. It is by no means incredible that memory in the future world will present to men everything which they have ever known and every transaction in which they were ever engaged. The susceptibility of joyful emotions will also accompany the soul into the invisible world. And one of the first feelings of the departed saint will be a lively sense of complete deliverance from all evil, natural and moral. The pains of death will be the last pain pangs ever experienced. When these are over, the soul will enjoy the feelings of complete salvation from every distress. What a new and delightful sensation will it be to feel safe from every future danger as well as saved from all past trouble. But the most important change experienced at this time will be the perfect purification of the soul from sin. The soul, heretofore struggling with inbred corruption, which stamped its ardour, darkened its views, and stupefied its feelings, can now act without any moral obstruction. Who that has often complained, like Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? but will feel this to be indeed heaven begun when there will be no more be felt any secret working of pride or envy or selfishness. But when it shall be pure 
and sweetly conscious of its own purity. As perfection in holiness supposes a clear knowledge of spiritual objects, so we know that we shall no more see the divine glory, as it were, by reflection from a glass, but directly, or face to face. The soul of man, probably greatly enlarged in his powers, may have new faculties developed, for which there was no use here, and of which it had no consciousness. Yet the field of knowledge being boundless, and our minds being capable of attending only to one thing at a time, our knowledge of celestial things will be gradually acquired and not perfected at once. Indeed, there can be no limit set to the progression in knowledge. It will be endless, and no doubt the unalloyed pleasures of the future state will be intimately connected with this continual increase of divine knowledge. And as here, knowledge is acquired by the aid of instructors, why may not the same be the fact in heaven? What a delightful employment to the saints who have been drinking in the knowledge of God and his works for thousands of years to communicate instruction to the saint just arrived. How delightful to conduct the pilgrim who had just finished his race through the ever-blooming bowers of paradise and to introduce him to this and the other ancient believer and to assist him to find out and recognize among so great a multitude old friends and earthly relatives. There need be no dispute about our knowing in heaven those whom we knew and loved here. For if there should be no faculty by which we could at once be recognized, yet by extended and familiar intercourse with the celestial inhabitants, it cannot be otherwise but that interesting discoveries will be made continually, and the unexpected recognition of old friends may be one of the sources of pleasure which will render heaven so present. But as the fleshly bond of relationship is dissolved at death, it seems reasonable to think that the only bond of union and kindred in heaven will be the spiritual bond, which unites all believers in one body, and to Christ their living head. Therefore, we may presume that there will be felt an ardent desire to form an acquaintance with the most remarkable personages who have lived from Adam downward, who, if admitted into paradise, could repress his curiosity to see, and if possible, to converse with the progenitor of our race. Doubtless, he could tell us some things which we do not fully understand, and who would not wish to see the first person who ever entered into those blessed abodes from our earth. Hey, and Enoch too, who never tasted death, and who still possesses his original body, changed and glorified, it is true, but still substantially the same. We might expect to find him in the company of Elijah, who is similarly circumstanced, and some think that the body of Moses, though he was dead and buried, was raised again, as he seems to have appeared in his own proper body on the Mount of Transfiguration. And where is Abraham, that venerable saint, who in faith and obedience exceeded all other men, and obtained from God the honorable appellation of the Father of the faithful and the friend of God? And who would be in heaven ever so short a time without desiring to see Paul, 
the apostle of the Gentiles, and not him only, but Peter and John and all the college of the apostles. But he thinks we are in danger of indulging our imaginations too far and of transferring to a heavenly state too many of the feelings and associations of our earthly condition. And I am reminded also that as the twinkling stars are lost in the blaze of the rising sun, so there is one person in the highest heavens, visible to all who enter that place, whose glory irradiates all the celestial mansions, whose love and smiles diffuse ineffable joy through all the heavenly hosts and in whom every believer has an absorbing interest with which no other can be compared. On his head he wears many crowns, and in his hand he holds a scepter by which he governs the universe. But yet he exhibits visibly the marks of the violent death which for us he once endured. His name is the Word of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Alpha and Omega, the Almighty. And behold, all the angels of God worship him, and the hosts of the redeemed, which no man can number, sing a song of praise to the Lamb, which no man can learn except those that are redeemed from among men. For the burden there their song is, to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. These are they that have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Every redeemed soul, upon being admitted into heaven, will for a while be so completely absorbed in the contemplation of that divine person that he will be incapable of paying much attention to any others. Like that Armenian princess, of whom Xenophon gives an account who after all the rest of the company had been expressing their admiration of Cyrus, one praising one thing and one another, upon being asked what about this royal personage she most admired most, answered that she did not even look at him, because her whole attention had been absorbed in admiring him, her young husband, who had offered to die for her. The saved sinner may say, that his attention was completely absorbed in gazing upon him, who not only said that he would die for him, but who actually did die in his place, and by this sacrifice redeemed him from the curse of the law and from all iniquity. The sweet and intimate intercourse which the redeemed soul will have with his Saviour cannot now be conceived. It will far extend all the ideas which we now conform, and will be a perfection of bliss so great that nothing can be added to it in any other way than by an increase of the capacity of the soul. But still, all that is enjoyed in the intermediate state between death and judgment is but a part of that felicity to which the redeemed of the Lord are destined hereafter. It is only the enjoyment of a separate soul, but the exceeding great and eternal weight of glory laid up in heaven for the children of God is for the whole man, made up of soul and body. And even in this world many pleasures are enjoyed by means of bodily organs who can tell what new and ever varying delights may be let into the soul 
by means of bodies of a celestial mold, bodies fashioned after the model of the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Our senses now bring to our view so many glorious objects, both in the heavens and the earth, how rich and delightful will be the vision of the upper heavens by the eyes of the resurrection body. Then shall we see Jesus with our bodily eyes. Then shall we behold what no tongue can describe, nor even heart conceive. The departed saints, therefore, though blessed to the full amount of their present capacity, yet are living in joyful expectation of a more glorious state. We should not think that the redemption and resuscitation of the body is a small matter. The body is an essential part of human nature, and the glorified body will add to the felicity of the redeemed in a degree which we have no means of calculating. The inspired writers, therefore, when they speak of the blessedness of heaven, speak sparingly of the state of the separate soul. But when they describe the resurrection, they seem to be enraptured. Here Paul, drawing a comparison between this mortal, corrupt, and earthly body, and that immortal, pure, and spiritual body, which will be possessed by every saint. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. As we are born the image of the earthy, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. No sooner shall these resuscitated bodies open their immortal eyes, than they shall behold the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And no sooner is the judgment set, than all these be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and shall be so highly honoured as to meet, have a place, and assessors as assessors on the judgment seat with him. And when the awful transactions of that day are ended, the redeemed shall accompany their Lord and Saviour to heaven, where they shall be put in full and eternal possession of that felicity and glory which Christ has purchased for them by his precious blood. In this sublime temple, their songs shall mingle with those of the holy angels forever and ever. It need not be supposed that saints in heaven will be continually employed in nothing but praise. This indeed will be their noblest employment, and the anthems of praise to God and the Lamb will never cease. But may we not reasonably suppose that the exercises and pursuits of the saints will be various? The wonderful works of God will open to their contemplation. They may be employed, as angels are now, as messages to distinct, distant worlds, either as instruments of justice or mercy. For we find that the angels are employed in both these ways. While then, one choir surrounds the throne and elevates the celestial song of praise for redemption, 
Others may be employed in executing the commands of their Lord, and then in their turn, these last may keep up the unceasing praise, while the first go forth on errands of mercy or wrath. Some have divided the angels into assisting and ministering. The first are supposed to be always engaged in acts of worship, while the last are always employed in other services. But it would be much more reasonable to suppose that they all, in turn, take their part in both these services. Here, however, it becomes us to pause, and in deep humility, on account of our ignorance and unworthiness, to put our hands on our mouths, and our mouths in the dust. We are slow to learn earthly things. How then can we comprehend those things which are heavenly? And if we are the children of God, we shall have experience of those celestial employments and never-ending joys. Soon, very soon, these things which are now dimly discerned by means of faith will be realized. When our humble saints shall appear with Christ in glory and shall never be exposed any more to danger of suffering, let us then now begin the song which shall never cease to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own precious blood. A prayer. For one who feels that he is approaching the borders of another world. Most merciful God, I rejoice that thou dost reign over the universe with a sovereign sway so that thou dost according to thy will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Thou art the maker of my body and the father of my spirit, and thou hast a perfect right to dispose of me in that manner which will most effectually promote thy glory. And I know that whatsoever thou dost is right and wise and just and good. And whatever may be my eternal destiny, I rejoice in the assurance that thy great name will be glorified in me. But as thou hast been pleased to reveal thy mercy and thy grace to our fallen, miserable world, and as the word of this salvation has been preached unto me, inviting me to accept of eternal life upon the gracious terms of the gospel, I do cordially receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Saviour, and only Redeemer, believing sincerely the whole testimony which thou hast given respecting his divine character, his real incarnation, his unspotted and holy life, his numerous and beneficent miracles, his expiatory and meritorious death, and his glorious resurrection and ascension. I believe also in his supreme exaltation in his prevalent intercession for his chosen people, in his affectionate care and aid afforded to his suffering members here below, and in his second coming to receive his humble followers to dwell with himself in heaven and to take vengeance on his obstinate enemies. My only hope and confidence of being saved rests simply on the meditorial work and prevailing intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ, in consequence of which the Holy Spirit is graciously sent 
to make application of Christ's redemption by working faith in us and repentance unto life and rendering us meet for the heavenly inheritance by sanctifying us in the whole man, soul, body and spirit. Grant, gracious God, that the rich blessings of the new covenant may be freely bestowed on thy unworthy servant. I acknowledge that I have no claim to thy favour on account of any goodness in me by nature. Alas, there dwelleth in me, that is in my flesh, no good thing, nor on account of any works of righteousness done by me, for all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Neither am I able to make atonement for any one of my innumerable transgressions, which I confess before thee, are not only many in number, but heinous in their nature, justly deserving thy displeasure and wrath. So that if I were immediately sent to hell, thou wouldest be altogether just in my condemnation. For though I trust that I have endeavoured to serve thee with some degree of sincerity, yet whatever good thing I have ever done, or even thought, I ascribe entirely to thy grace, without which I can do nothing acceptable in thy sight. And I am deeply convinced that my best duties have fallen short of the perfection of thy law, and have been so mingled with sin in the performance, that I might justly be condemned for the most fervent prayer I ever made. And I would confess with shame and contrition that I am not only chargeable with sin in the act, but there, there is a law in my members, warning against the law of my mind, aiming to bring me into captivity to the law of sin and death. This corrupt nature is the source of innumerable evil, thoughts and desires, and damps the exercise of faith and love, and stands in the way of well-doing, so when I would do good, evil is present with me. And so deep and powerful is this remaining depravity, that all efforts to eradicate or subdue it are vain, without the aid of thy grace. And when at any time I obtain a glimpse of the depth and turpitude of the sin of my nature, I am overwhelmed and constrained to explain with Job before myself and repent in dust and ashes. And now, righteous Lord Almighty, I would not attempt to conceal any of my actual transgressions, however vile and shameful they are, but would penitently confess them before thee, and would plead in my defence nothing but the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, the just for the unjust, for it to bring us near to God. For his sake alone do I ask or expect the rich blessings necessary to my salvation. For although I am unworthy, he is most worthy. Though I have no righteousness, he has provided by his expiatory death and by his holy life a complete justifying righteousness, in which spotless robe I pray that I may be clothed, so that though my righteous judge, 
wilt see no sin in me, but wilt acquit me from every accusation and justify me freely by thy grace. Through the righteousness of my Lord and Saviour, with whom thou art ever well pleased. My earnest prayer is that Jesus may save me from my sins as well as from their punishment, that I may be redeemed from all iniquity as well as from the condemnation of the law, that the work of sanctification may be carried on in my soul by thy word and spirit until it is perfected at thine appointed time. And grant, O Lord, that as long as I am the body, I may, I may make it my constant study and chief aim to glorify thy name, both with soul and body, which are no longer mine, but thine. For I am bought with a price, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Enable me to let my light so shine, that others seeing my good works may be led to glorify thy name. Make use of me as a humble instrument of advancing thy kingdom on earth and promoting the salvation of immortal souls. If thou hast appointed suffering for me here below, I beseech thee to consider my weakness and let thy chastisements be those of a loving father that I may be made partaker of thy holiness. And let not me be tempted above what I am able to bear, but with the temptation make a way of escape. O most merciful God, cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength declineth. Now when I am old and grey-headed, Forsake me not, but let thy grace be sufficient for me, and enable me to bring forth fruit, even in old age. May my hoary head be found in the ways of righteousness. Preserve my mind from dotage and imbecility, and my body from protracted disease and excruciating pain. Deliver me from despondency and discouragement in my declining years, and enable me to bear affliction with a patience, fortitude, and perfect submission to thy holy will. Lift upon, lift upon me perpetually the light of thy reconciled countenance. And cause me to rejoice in thy salvation, and in the hope of thy glory. May the peace that passeth all understanding be constantly diffused through my soul, so that my mind may remain calm through all the storms and vicissitudes of life. As in the course of nature, I must be drawing near to my end. And as I know I must soon put off this tabernacle, I do humbly and earnestly beseech thee, O Father of mercies, to prepare me for this inevitable and solemn event. Fortify my mind against the terrors of death. Give me, if it please thee, an easy passage through the gate of death. Dissipate the dark clouds and mists which naturally hang over the grave, 
and lead me gently down into the gloomy valley. O oh, my kind shepherd, who has tasted the bitterness of death for me, and who knows how to sympathize with and succor the sheep of thy pasture, be thou present to guide, to support, and to comfort me. Illumine with beams of heavenly light the valley and shadow of death, so that I may fear no evil. When heart and flesh fail, be thou the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let not my courage fail in the trying hour. Permit not the great adversary to harass my soul in the last struggle, but make me a conqueror, and more than a conqueror, in this fearful conflict. I humbly ask that my reason may be continued to the last, and if it be thy will, that I may be so comforted and supported that I may leave a testimony in favour of the reality of religion and thy faithfulness in fulfilling thy gracious promises, and that others of thy servants, who may follow after, may be encouraged by my example to commit themselves boldly to the guidance and keeping of the Shepherd of Israel. And when my spirit leaves this clay tenement, Lord Jesus, receive it. Send some of the blessed angels to convey my inexperienced soul to the mansion which thy love has prepared. And oh, let me be so situated, though in the lowest rank that I may behold thy glory. May I have an abundant entrance administered unto me into the kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, whose sake and whose name I ask all these things. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.